Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Revelation, and you can go to chapter 12, which is where we are at. And as you are turning there, let's talk to the Lord. Father, I am so thankful that the words of that song are true, and that it's not the opposite, that we're not saying that it's not Christ, it's us. Because, Lord, if that was the case, and we would be not just in danger of eternal damnation, Lord, our, our fate would be sealed. And we're going to see tonight, Lord, the enemy's fate is sealed. But praise Jesus, your Son, that we will not go down in destruction with Satan. That though we rebelled against you just like him, in your mercy, God, you have saved us and you have spared us, and your son has been punished for us. And this great story is the hope of the whole world. And all through history, you have been working, God, to show the whole world the glory of your son, the immeasurable glory of your son. And tonight, we see it in the epic of Revelation 12, 1 through 6. And I pray, God, that it would cause us to rejoice and that it would cause us to want to run out into the world shouting, shouting the truths of the gospel. Yet not I, but Christ through me. We love you, Lord, and we pray in your Son's name that you would help us to understand your word. Amen. Well, last week we wrapped up the third of seven cycles in Revelation, and as we start the fourth cycle, I thought it'd be good just to take like three minutes in review. Um, cycle one, we saw a picture of Jesus writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor in the midst of his churches, giving them a message that was for them, but not just for them. It was also for all the churches throughout the church age. And the churches would have plenty of challenges. The churches would have plenty of problems. Some of them would have sin that they needed to repent of. Some of them had suffering they had to endure. And some of them had both of those things at the same time. But all of them are promised that if they would repent of sin, if they need to, right, if they would repent, and, and if they would all endure, then in the end, they will have victory in Christ. And they won't have that victory because they're faithful and God is saying, well, you have earned this victory. Instead, we know that their victory was earned by Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection, through the saving work he did, but their faithfulness will be proof they have actually received the promises of God in Christ by faith and that they will receive the victor's crown when Jesus returns. In cycle two, we got a glimpse of this amazing worship scene in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5, and Jesus taking a scroll with all of history written on it, completely sealed up with seven seals, and he opens it because he's the only one worthy to do that. And every time he cracks a seal, uh, we see things happening in history. And so uh, humanity and nature experience judgment, but the church itself is sealed up by God. They serve him on earth until they worship him in heaven. But they do that in the midst of a world that has conquest and war and famine and death all around. And so as the church goes out proclaiming the gospel, the world martyrs Christians. And with the fifth seal, the martyrs cry out for justice. And then in the sixth seal, justice comes with the second coming. 
In cycle three, our attention turned not to, uh, not to seven seals, but to seven trumpets that showed us God's judgments on humanity and in the earth until Christ returns. And in the first of the four trumpets, we saw how uh, God's judgments are active in nature until the Lord returns. And then we saw three woes pronounced with each of the final three trumpets. With the fifth, Satan and his demons are tormenting the lives of unbelievers. With the sixth trumpet, Satan and his demons are causing all sorts of war in the world. But as all this is going on, we get an explanation of what the church is doing in Revelation 11. God is measuring his church in terms of her worship and devotion and sending her out as a witness. But the world will hate the message of the church and will seek to kill the church and leave her body in the streets and to celebrate over it. But in the end, the Lord will return. And the church will be resurrected, and the final judgment will come down upon those who dwell on the earth while the age of glory begins for the people of God. And so with each cycle, we're seeing the same events just from different perspectives, and now we get into the fourth cycle of moving images in chapter 12. And this cycle is crucial because in a lot of ways it is the centerpiece for the book of Revelation. Revelation is not a book that kind of builds up to the end. It is what is called a chiasm, which means that the centerpiece is the middle. And and that is not unusual for Jewish apocalyptic literature, which Revelation is. On one side, we have cycles 1, 2, and 3, which we've already seen. On the other side, we'll see cycles 5, 6, and 7 coming. And right in the middle, we have the fourth cycle. And it tells the story of history, and it tells the story of God's redemption of His people, and He uses these really um, clearly identifiable images from the Old Testament to do it. All seven cycles are important, but the book is set up to draw attention to this epic battle in the middle between the dragon and the beast and the false prophet versus the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. On one side with the dragon are the people who dwell in the earth. On the other side, with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, you have the people of God who worship the one who is seated on the throne and the Lamb. See, the church in the first century, the seven Asia Minor churches who heard this for the first time, were in a war. They had members being killed by the government. We don't know what that's like at Seaford Baptist Church. We may have had some people come, come to me and say, you know, I feel like my bosses treat me differently because I'm a Christian. And that's a serious thing to deal with in the workplace. That's no small thing. I'm not brushing that off. But we don't know what it's like to have members killed by the government for their faith. They had members being persecuted by the synagogues, right? We, we don't really know what it's like to have some reformed Jewish people from like the synagogue in Newport News come and, and, and try to bring violence against us, right? We've never experienced that, but that's what they were experiencing. They had members being seduced by sin. And in the fourth cycle, the Lord is pulling back the curtain to say to them, look, you're in war, but there's a war behind the war. What you're dealing with on the surface has a whole lot that's going on underneath it. And that's what makes chapter 12 a bit of a turning point as well. In, John, in, in, in 1 through 11, John is showing the church suffering in the world, being persecuted for her gospel witness. And in chapters 12 through 22, it's going to go from what's going on in the earth to war in heaven, the spiritual realities behind the physical history. And tonight we look at just the first six verses of the chapter. Just get introduced to the main characters. Other characters will come along, important characters, but we meet the main characters here tonight. So I'll read for us, starting in verse 1. 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. What I just read to you is the history of creation up until tonight, February 23rd, 2023. Okay? In, in six verses, God just says, boom, here's all of history. Here's everything from, from the beginning of, of time as we know it all the way up to right now, this moment right now. It's redemption history up to the present. And it's being explained to us now with some new moving pictures. We're not dealing with seals and trumpets anymore. We're not dealing with bowls yet. That's going to come in the next cycle. Now we're getting these characters that are locked in an epic battle for eternal glory. And the first one we meet is the woman who is clothed with the sun and has the moon under her feet and she's got a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she is pregnant and she is crying out as if she is in labor. Now this is not a literal woman. We know that because it says that she appears as a great sign in heaven. So she is a sign. She is symbolic of something. We're not dealing with a literal adult female who is pregnant. Also not dealing with the Virgin Mary, as many Catholics have argued over the years. And if you look at medieval art, very much they are arguing this is the Virgin Mary. But no. The biggest clue we get as to who we're dealing with comes in the 12-starred crown. And when you see the 12-starred crown, and you see the sun, and you see the moon, it is meant to draw our attention back to Genesis 37. Joseph's dream. Where it says, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So Jacob clearly understood his son's dream, right? He said, oh, I'm the sun, your mom's the moon and your brothers are the stars. Like, he put it together in an instant. He didn't have to go to, like, a prophecy class at seminary for this one. You know what I'm saying? He just knew. He was like, I see what I see what's, you're cooking up with this dream here, and what do you mean by this, right? He was offended by it. The stars here in Revelation 12 are a reference to that. The 12 stars here are a reference to the 12 stars from Joseph's dream. Right? You say, well, wait a second, there are only 11. Right, but he was the 12th, right? Because he had the 11 brothers. And so I will argue that the 12 stars clue us into the fact that this woman represents the people of God since the people of God sprang from the 12 sons who serve as the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel who are represented by the 12 stars in Genesis 37. Good time to remind ourselves again that we are dealing with Revelation, which is a piece of Jewish apocalyptic literature. It's an inspired, perfect, inerrant, infallible piece of Jewish apocalyptic literature, but that's the genre. And in that genre, numbers have meaning. And so, 
uh, in Revelation and in the Bible in general, 12 is a number that symbolizes completeness in humanity, and in particular, it symbolizes completeness in the people of God. For example, as we just talked about, God brings forth a nation from Abraham. How many tribes are in that nation? Twelve. We fast forward to the New Testament. How come when Jesus went about calling his disciples, he stopped at the number twelve? Do you think it's because he was just like, well, there's only twelve that I can call? There's not another guy I can make something of in all of Galilee. Do you think that he went to twelve because he got to eleven and he was like, I just don't like odd numbers, you know? No, he knew exactly what he was doing. He called 12 disciples who were going to be the 12 patriarchs of the new covenant community in the same way we had 12 patriarchs of the old covenant community. They are going to build his church. Wasn't on accident. Jesus, or, or uh, excuse me, Judas turns heel on Jesus. Then he dies. What do the apostles do? Do they go, eh, just, we'll roll with 11? No. They're like, this is incomplete. There's got to be 12 if we're going to be complete. They understood what they were being called to build. They understood what that number represented. It had to be 12. And so this woman is representing the people of God. The church under the law, Old Testament, built on the 12 patriarchs. The church under grace, New Testament, built on the 12 apostles. She's clothed with the sun. She's got the moon under her feet. This accomplishes two things. On one hand, the sun and the moon next to the 12 stars helps the reader go, oh yeah, Genesis 37, Joseph's dream. Right? It's a breadcrumb for us. But on the other hand, the sun and the moon tell us something about the woman and about who she serves. She is clothed with the sun, which I think tells us two things. Okay? One is that she reflects the glory of her king. That the people of God reflect the glory of her majestic king, right? Uh, Psalm 104, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. So on one hand, she's reflecting the glory of God, but on the other hand, she's wrapped up in the righteous deeds that she performs for God. Later on, um, as the bride of Christ is being described around the, the marriage supper table of the Lamb, she, she's radiant, and that radiance is described as the righteous deeds of the saints. And so, as the love of God transforms the people of God, and they perform the work of God on God's behalf in the world, she looks beautiful, because she is showing the light of, of, of of her king to the world, right? So she is reflecting the light of the king, and she is also showing the light of, king, of the king in her, um, in her deeds that she does, her righteous deeds she does on his behalf. She is arrayed in burning brightness. She's got the moon under her feet like sandals, which shows the authority that she has. God's people have authority, and we get that authority from our Lord. Our Lord has the nations as his footstool, as his ottoman. Psalm 110, a messianic psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father until he returns. And in his divine authority, his enemies will be his footstool. That is his inheritance. 
Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That's a promise the Father is making to the Son that the nations will be His. And now, in His authority, Jesus the Son, and we're going to see this when we get to Acts 1 in a couple weeks, Jesus the Son is sending out His church, sending out His people, and He's sending us out to the nations in His power, in His authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And one day, as his bride, his people will reign with him and share in his inheritance. This was promised in the Old Testament. In Psalm 37, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And it has come true for the people of God by faith in Christ. If they suffer with him, They will reign with them. It's what Paul says. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. We will reign with Him. So to be appointed on mission and to be a fellow heir in the kingdom, I'd say, yeah, that's some pretty serious authority God's laid on His church. And that's why God's woman stands on the moon. It demonstrates that heavenly authority that He has given to her. We shouldn't be surprised here to see the people of God described as a woman. I've had somebody say to me before, I've had a man say to me before, I'm not comfortable when preachers start talking about how the church is God's bride, and I don't think that, he was like, I don't think it's a good way to get men to come to church by saying you're God's bride. He was like, I don't know if preachers should talk that way. And I'm like, you have a problem with the Bible. You don't have a problem with preachers, you have a problem with the Bible, because when you read the Bible, the Bible has no problem talking about the people of God as a woman, and particularly as God's wife. So in Isaiah 54, verse 5, it says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. And so Israel in the Old Testament is the wife of God. The problem is that she's not a faithful wife. There's a whole prophetic book about this called Hosea. But the Lord still loved her. And there was always at least a remnant in Israel that loved him. I mean, even when things are so bad that they are about to be disciplined and carried off into Babylonian captivity, they still got a king, even though he's a child like Josiah who comes along and says, tear down all the idols, get all the the altars, tear them down, rip it out of here, and and, and let's rebuild the temple, and and then let's preach the word. And He brings all this religious reform, because even when they're right about to be disciplined, there was still Josiah's there was always a remnant that loved him but so much of Israel rejected him it was that cycle of disobedience they'd repent and then he would receive his mercy and then they would turn right around and do it again as we come to the new covenant God is grafting Gentiles into the tree of promise non-Jewish people into the covenant and the blood of Christ is saving Jewish and non-Jewish people And now the New Testament church is, very much like Old Testament Israel, the bride of God. We are the bride of Christ. And it's nowhere more clear than Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, verse 6, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride 
has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's what we just talked about. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he said to me, these are the true words of God. So this is who the woman is. It's the people of God. And in verse 2, she cries out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. She is in labor. When we get to verse 5, we'll see she gives birth to this male child who will rule the nations. And you might have some guesses as to who that is, right? You are right if you said Jesus. She's going to give birth to Jesus in verse 5. So we can be confident then that in verse 2, when it's talking about the people of God being pregnant, that we're talking about the old covenant people of God. We're talking about the church under the law. Israel was God's bride, and the Lord brought His Son forth from her. She was pregnant throughout the Old Testament, growing year by year with each prophecy, with each passing day. And her labor pains reached fever pitch, ironically, when the prophets go silent and stop speaking. As she screams out, they quit speaking. And then... Just as Micah had predicted in one of his prophetic ultrasounds, the Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem. His coming forth was from the ancient of days, but his human lineage was Israel. God's son had the blood of the wife of Yahweh flowing through his veins. And once we get down to verse 6, we will see the new covenant people of God, the church under grace, going from a pregnant mother to being in exile in the wilderness, being nourished by God. And so in this passage, the woman represents God's people from the garden to the redeemed who are sitting in this room tonight and watching on the live stream. We're going to get to the New Testament side of things in a moment, but for now, let's look at the dragon. He is described as another sign that appears in heaven. He's red, he's got seven heads, ten horns, and on his head are seven diadems. Earlier I mentioned that the medieval art. You want to see some scary looking stuff, man. Look up Revelation 12 medieval art and see some of these dragons that they painted. And the heads and the crowns and the whole thing. This is not a literal apocalyptic monster who's going to come to earth in the future like some sort of M. Night Shyamalan movie. Okay? Instead, this is the serpent from the garden being described as a dragon. The same one who slithered in and deceived Adam and Eve. This is Abaddon the destroyer that we met in chapter 9. This is the desolator who makes desolate. This is the king over the bottomless pit. We are told explicitly who he is in Revelation 12 verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The dragon is the most common name for him in the book of Revelation, but he's also called Satan, he's called the devil, he's called the serpent. We see here he's got these seven heads and seven crowns and ten horns. Remember, numbers mean things in Revelation, right? It's very reminiscent of the fourth beast from Daniel 7. If you read in Daniel 7, there's a fourth beast that has ten horns. Vern Poitras says, in Daniel and Revelation, multiple heads often symbolize multiple manifestations of a single kingdom. In the same way, Satan manifests his power through multiple channels and multiple institutions and events. We've seen that. All throughout Revelation, we've seen that, right? He's doing it with war. He's doing it with famine. He's doing it with conquest. He's doing it with martyrdom. He's doing it through the government. He's got all these different ways that he's trying to get at God and get at God's church. 
Seven, the number of completeness, Poitras says, suggests that the dragon has extensive power in many manifestations. Those who dwell in the earth have bowed down to the dragon. They have surrendered to his power. Unbelievers have surrendered to his authority, his limited authority that he has been given. They have committed his original sin and rejected God, and they have tried to steal the glory of God in their lives. Therefore, they are followers of the dragon. When I was in seventh grade, I wasn't a Christian. I was listening to a guy named Marilyn Manson on a regular basis, and I remember to this day what he said. Satan does not want you to worship him. He wants you to worship yourself. He said that before I was even a Christian, and I thought, well, that makes sense. And that's exactly what Satan wants. He doesn't need you to bow down to him. As long as you're trying to steal God's glory, he doesn't care what you're trying to steal it for. As long as you're trying to steal the glory of God, you're in on his rebellion. You've chosen your side. This world is under his rule. It's the domain of darkness. And that is why the New Testament talks about Satan as the lowercase g God of this age. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, talking about unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The New Testament talks about how the world lies in the power of Satan. We know we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Even Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. He says the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, we know tonight that there's only one true capital R ruler of this world, only one true capital G God of this universe. It is the one seated on the throne. But back in chapter 9, verse 1, it said, uh, I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. That key is the authority that... That, that God has given to Satan. It is a limited authority for a limited time. You say, well, why would he do that? Same reason he does everything. That his son would be all the more glorified and the redemption of his people would be all the more glorious. But for now, the world belongs to the dragon and the evidence of that is all around us. He's red, same color as the horse of war and bloodshed from Revelation 6. Meaning, when you look around and you see how human blood runs because of human sin, understand that that is because the world lies in the power of Satan for now. You see an example of his power in verse 4. The text, I think, is pretty linear, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, except verse 4, it's out of order. Verse 4 is telling us about Satan's fall. At some point after creation, before the fall of Adam in the garden, Satan rebelled against God and he fell. Powerful enough that as he fell, he took a large portion, or maybe the number's literal, and it was an actual third. Either way, he took a lot of rebellious angels with him, and they are now the demonic forces that we met back in chapter 9. Isaiah and Ezekiel both describe the cosmic treason of Satan in their prophecies. Isaiah says, "'How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn!' How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. 
Ezekiel in Ezekiel 28.16 talks about Satan's fall and says, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Satan's always had one objective. He wants God's spot. That's it. He wants his spot. He wants to undermine God's authority and God's position and God's glory. He wants all authority and all position and all glory for himself. So, to show this, to, to, to see this and how it plays out in the Scriptures, back in Genesis 2, God gives a law, but His law is couched in immeasurable generosity, is it not? He takes man, puts him in the Garden of Eden, He's going to work it, He's going to keep it, and God gives him a command. He says, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Any tree you want, Adam, just not one. I'd say that's a pretty generous lawgiver. Here's the law. You can't have this tree. And then I'm going to couch that in generosity. Here's countless trees you can eat from. To my glory and for your joy. And just in case we would try to argue the point, right after this, God makes the decision for Adam that in a world where everything is still good, it would not be good for Adam to be alone. And so he gives him a wife. So he's a good and generous God filled with blessing and love, but he desires obedience. So he gives a law, but the law is couched with all these gracious promises. This reflects God's character. He is not a tyrant. Sure, he has commands. Sure, he has laws that are for our benefit, by the way. But he couches them with blessings and generosity. But suddenly, we're introduced to a new character in Genesis 3.1 that is not like God at all. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God gives just one law. The dragon slithers in through the dust. What's he going to do? He's going to question that one law. And not just question the law, but he's going to question the very character of God. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Come on! Come on, Eve! God's just selfish and stingy. He wants to to keep all the good stuff for Himself. He's holding back happiness from you, Eve. He's not good. Don't listen to Him. Eat. If that sounds familiar, it should, because He tried it on you yesterday. Right? Right? He tried it on us this afternoon. He tried it on us last week. This is His move to try and counterfeit God and undermine God's authority by offering the image bearers of God empty promises about how He can provide something better for them. You know why He's got seven heads and seven crowns? One of the reasons is He knows seven is God's number and He is trying to counterfeit the Father and fool you. And we'll see Him doing that as we get further along in the coming chapters. He wants to counterfeit the sun. Ooh, here's a beast. Worship the beast, not the sun. Don't listen to the spirit. Listen to the false prophet. It's his move. This is what he does to try to counterfeit the work of the Lord in order to undermine the work of the Lord. But understand that when Adam and Eve sinned and the world fell into the power of the evil one, what happened is Satan brought the key of sin in through the back door of the garden and used it to unlock the front door so death could walk right in and make itself at home in this world. And you know what? God took that personally. 
And so he personally had a plan to do something about it. And that plan is implied in the end of verses 4 and and into verse 5. The woman is ready to give birth. The dragon stands in front of her and he wants to devour the child, but he can't. This male child who is destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron is caught up to God before Satan can do anything about it. And this is a reference to the birth and to the life and to the death and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ascension and His imminent return. But to get that, again, we've got to go back to the garden. We're not done there yet. We've got to see the aftermath of sin. Adam and Eve eat from the tree. They break the one rule that God has given. And what are they told? You will surely die. They own up to their sin. They point to Satan. He lied to us. That's why we ate the fruit. If you grew up in church, you maybe never remember a moment where you felt the tension of this because you just always kind of grew up and you knew where the story goes. You're like, oh, they don't die yet. They do die, but it's like hundreds of years later. It's okay. Everything's okay, right? I remember the first time I read this, I was 12 years old. I never read it before because I didn't grow up in church. And I remember reading it and I remember thinking, is he going to kill them? Like the tension was there. I was like, God's going to kill them. Oh my goodness, these are the first two people. How are they going to get out of this, right? He doesn't even address them at first. He starts pronouncing curses all right, but he doesn't even address Adam and Eve. He starts with Satan. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's talking about Eve. So Satan, there's going to be enmity between you and Eve. Between your offspring, who is the offspring of Satan? I don't think we're talking about demons here. I think we're talking about those who rebel against the purposes of God and follow Him. Your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's going to be hatred between Satan's lineage and Eve's. Satan will bruise the heel. That's not a fatal blow. But the seed of Eve will ultimately bruise Satan's head. That is a fatal blow, especially for a snake. What happens in the very next chapter? Cain, the rebellious one from the lineage of the enemy, rises up to kill Abel, the obedient one, from the lineage of Eve. One seed of Eve kills another, and God says to Cain, this happened, why? Because sin was crouching at the door waiting to destroy you. The same sin that came into the garden and brought death. So Satan responds to the curse immediately by going after the seed. And then that keeps happening. Ishmael against Isaac. Esau against Jacob. Saul against David. Herod killing every Jewish boy under the age of two in the region. All in hopes of what? Snuffing out the seed. Who's behind that maniacal behavior from Herod? It's Satan. It's the serpent. Time and time again, he is bent. As soon as he hears the curse from God, he's like, i got to destroy the seed. It is not going to step on my head. I can't let this happen. And so he conspires and he deals treacherously and he gets Jesus hung up on a Roman cross. And surely the dragon thought, I did it! I killed the seed! No child of Eve is going to step on my head now. If it was going to be anyone, it was going to be that one. And now he's dead. And that brings us to verse 5. Verse 4 ends with Satan standing there ready to devour the male child and to rejoice. It's sick. It's a sick scene. I've had three kids born. That's a sacred scene, right? 
It's a sacred scene when you're there and that baby's coming out and mom's crying and pushing and you hear the cries of that little one for the first time and everybody's crying and rejoicing and it's, all, it's, it's, it's a sacred scene. And here comes the enemy. It's, it's, it's perverted. He's standing there waiting for the child to come out so he can eat it. Right? It, it's a perversion. But he can't get away with it. The child is snatched up, taken to God and to his throne. This is a reference to the ascension. Acts 1, verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And wrapped up in this reference to the ascension is the entire ministry of Christ. The ascension is the proof that the work has been done, that Christ has overcome Satan, overcome sin, overcome death by dying and then resurrecting and ascending to the right hand of the Father. Satan thought supreme victory has come. And the old covenant community of God gave birth to the Son as he came from Abraham and David's heritage, and Satan was ready to eat him, to crucify him, to dance on his grave. And instead, Jesus resurrects and ascends, and Satan's eternal fate is sealed before he even knew what hit him. And the head bruising has commenced. And it will be consummated when Christ returns from his exalted position and brings final judgment and steps on the dragon's head once and for all. Dennis Johnson on this phrase, caught up to God and to his throne, he says, this terse statement encapsulates the life, suffering, and exaltation of Jesus. He was born, he was caught up to God, and he shares God's throne of infinite authority. And when Christ returns, he will fulfill that Psalm 2 messianic prophecy. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The nations will be his heritage. The ends of the earth will be his possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That was the promise. And what is he doing here? She gave birth to a male child, one is to, uh, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is Jesus. And because of him, it is sure that Satan will not get God's position. He will not steal the inheritance of the Son. He will not stop the God-glorifying mission of the Messiah or the church. And so that brings us to God's people, the church. What happens to them? The Messiah sins. He's safe from the enemy. But what do they do? Well, we see that the woman, the people of God, are in exile. Not because they're being disciplined by God, but because of the spiritual reality that this is not our home and we have no final address here and we have no lasting city here. The imagery of verse 6 should make us think of Israel trekking through the wilderness on their way to Canaan. Delivered from Egypt by Moses, depending on God as they move toward the promised land. For us as the church, we've been delivered by a more perfect Moses from something much worse than slavery in Egypt. We have been freed from slavery to sin, and now like Israel, we are depending on the Lord in the wilderness of this world, trekking toward the promised land of the new earth. So while verse 2 shows us the Old Testament church, the church under the law, looking forward in faith, trusting in God's plan of salvation, waiting for the birth of the Savior from her line, verse 6 shows us the New Testament church, the church under grace, fleeing into the wilds after Christ has ascended. What's implied in this is that after Jesus ascends, that Satan goes, well, if I can't kill the bridegroom, I'm going to kill the bride. And he's hunting her. But she is 
taken to a place prepared by God. That's where she flees to. And she'll be nourished there for 1,260 days. She's never alone. He's always with her. If the number 1,260 days rings a bell, it should. It's yet another reference to the last half of Daniel's 70th symbolic week. It's a reference to the age of the church. 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days, three and a half days. These are all different ways of explaining the time in between the first and the second coming of Christ. Until he returns, the church remains in this time of purification, much like Israel in the wilderness. The Lord is sanctifying his bride. The Lord is getting her ready for the wedding day. And it's coming. But until then, he nourishes her as she does his work in the world. The place that's prepared for her, that is his presence. Wherever the church hides from the dragon, God is there. There's never a time where the church flees from the dragon and God goes, oh, I didn't know you were going to make that turn. Well, I can't go with you. There's nowhere the church runs from the dragon that he is not there. In chapter 11, he measures the church and protects her. In chapter 12, he nourishes her and protects her. It's explained with more detail later in the chapter. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. A time and times and half a time. Yet another way of explaining the church age. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. Michael Kuykendall, I can never say his name right. Michael Kuykendall says, they all reflect persecution, protection, testing, and witness for the saints. And what this does is keep the tension going that has been there throughout all of Revelation. You see God's people being slain, but you also see them being resurrected. They're being persecuted, but they're protected. They're being tested, but they're not abandoned. They're fleeing into the wilderness, but they're nourished. And is this not the experience of the church? Is this not what we live in? In the age of the church, as we serve together and as we proclaim the gospel, Satan attacks us, we are persecuted, we are troubled. God allows us to be stretched, He allows us to be shaken as much as He wants us to be stretched and shaken, but at no point does He leave us without His nourishment. At no point does He leave us without Himself. He's always with us wherever we go until He brings us home. And as we close up tonight, I want to say to you that what that should do is motivate you to boldly, boldly uh, preach and, and proclaim the gospel knowing that you are in the wilderness. You're hunted by the dragon, but as long as you are preaching the Word of God and the place where God wants you preaching it, then you're walking in the will of God, and that's the safest place you can be on this earth. You could be in the most dangerous place possible proclaiming the gospel, but if that's where God puts you to proclaim his gospel, there's not a safer place you could be. You might die there. You might lose your life. And you will pass from life to life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and though you die, you do not die because you have life in him. So you, again, are in the safest place you could be. If you walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, you are in the safest place that you could be. To rebel against God, that's danger. 
Rebel against God in the, the, the most ritzy mansion with all the money and the security that the world has to offer. Rebel against God in the penthouse of the nicest hotel in the world. You're in the most dangerous place. And when you go into this world and you do that work to proclaim the Word of God, because you believe it is the will of God to do that where He has placed you. And you say, Christ was crucified. Christ was resurrected. Christ is coming again. Repent and put your faith in Him. What you are doing every day is pronouncing and proclaiming the death sentence of Satan. The story's written. We know what happens to these characters. The dragon's going to end up in a fiery pit along with anyone else who joins in on his rebellion, the woman is going to end up in a wedding dress sitting next to Jesus, drinking the best wine of all of eternity, eating the best fare. And when you go out into the world and you tell that story, you are proclaiming the destruction of Satan on his turf. So go do that. Early and often, every day. Go out into the world and tell the nations that Christ has been born and he is going to stomp on Satan's head and call them to repent. Tell them that they are hitching their eternal hopes to a loser who is going to spend his eternity in a fiery pit. Warn them so that they would not go down with him. Call on them to believe in Christ and to find all of the love and mercy that you know is waiting for them there. Recently, my wife and I were talking to one another, and, and she was away. She was in Powhatan, uh, helping her family with some things, and we uh, were texting, and I was reiterating my love to her, which, lest you think your pastor is a perfect husband, I need to do that more. It just happened to be a night where we were talking, and she was away, and I said, I love you. I should do that more when she's here, so no, I am a sinner, and my wife will tell you I'm very imperfect and still being sanctified, okay? But men, we should tell our wives how much we love them, and so we were talking about it, and I told her, I said, I'm going to be married to you until we're both married to Jesus. I said, just so you know, that's my plan, all right? I got no other plan. It's me and you until we're both married to Jesus. And that's the way it is for all of our lives. We're all waiting on that wedding. But until it comes, proclaim the death sentence of Satan every single day. I want it in all areas of my life. I just mentioned my marriage. I'll close up with this. I'll say this. Let's just apply what we're talking about to marriage. I want to love my wife like Christ loves the church, sacrifice for her and honor her so that my marriage will demonstrate the gospel to the world. And I want to see Satan's demise in my marriage. And I want to see Christ's superiority in my marriage. That we would say, he's worth it, so we're going to get rid of these things, right? I want my marriage to make clear to my kids and the people that come into my home, that Satan is defeated and Christ is king. That's how I can steward this covenant that God has given to Katie and I for the gospel's sake. That is how I proclaim the death sentence of Satan. It's by saying Christ is supreme in my marriage and showing that to the people that come in our lives. And so it is with your parenting and your working and your service in this church and your coaching and your friendships and all things proclaim the crucified and resurrected and ascended Christ as supreme. Call people to repent. Remind them of what will come of the enemy and anyone who sides with them. Proclaim the death sentence of Satan. We'll see war in heaven when we get back together in a few weeks. Let's pray. Father, we've gone way over tonight. Thank you for everyone's patience.
But I also thank you, God, just for how good the Word is. And I pray, Father, that you would be um, glorified by how we have uh, studied it tonight. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave here just tracing the glory of the gospel, this glorious grace that you have bestowed upon us and the good news of the kingdom and your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has been born. We thank you that Satan could not lay a finger upon him unless you willed it and that he resurrected and that he proved he is the victor over sin and death and the dragon. We long for his return, Lord. We long for our wedding day. But until then, we will proclaim the death sentence of the enemy, and we will proclaim the superiority of Christ. Help us to do it as your workmanship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.